I'd invite you to turn your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 18. And I'll be reading some selected verses beginning at verse 20 of 1 Kings chapter 18. Last Sunday I uh, introduced a, a sermon on uh, revival, concerning revival, because God has, um, I think, kind of laid on my heart to um, preach uh, concerning our need for revival and how revival comes about. Uh, I agree with uh, Manly Beasley who said that the only thing that's going to keep us from being a reproach to God until Jesus comes is a revival, a personal revival in our heart and a corporate revival in our churches. And so for the next few weeks, I'm going to be talking about that. And today I want us to come to this uh, perhaps most famous of all Old Testament stories concerning the, the renewal of God or the power of God demonstrated. And I guess that if you were going to study the anatomy of a revival, there could be no better text than uh, this one. You, you know the story. In fact, the 18th chapter is the, is the, uh, is the scripture, really, and, uh, but I'll not try to read all of that. You know it's the showdown that took place on Mount Carmel between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, What a question. He says, How long will you hesitate between two commitments, between two opinions. If the Lord is God, follow Him. If Baal, follow Him. But the people did not answer Him a word. Now verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. So all the people came near to Him, and He repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench round the altar large enough to hold two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood and cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the altar and he said, Fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water flowed around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. Then it came about at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that Thou art God in Israel, and that I am Thy servant, and that I have done all these things at Thy word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this Thy people may know that Thou, O Lord, art God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Revival. Then the fire of the Lord fell, and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, 
they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. Jehovah, He is God. Now, I asked some questions last week, and I know that to ask the same questions would be to, you know, you already know how it's going to all come out, but um, I asked the question, how many of you, show of hands, not today, but last week, how many of you believe that America needs revival? We were all of the same opinion, that America needs revival. And how many of you feel that your church needs revival? And everybody raised their hand. Some didn't, but they... Just didn't want to get involved, I suppose. But, and I ask then, how many of you believe that you yourself need revival? Kind of weeded a few out there. And then the most crucial question of all, why isn't it happening? Why isn't it coming to pass? I mean, where's the bottleneck? Who's the culprit that's preventing revival to, to happen. If we all want revival and need revival, where is the culprit that's causing revival not to happen? Why isn't it happening? Is the sovereignty of God such that God just says, I'm going to move in time and history and revival when I choose, regardless of what man does? Or is the sovereignty of God so related to the will of man that God says, if you will, I will. I believe that religious history affirms or confirms the fact that God waits His movings upon man. That God stands in the wings waiting for man to do His homework so that He can do His office work. And I believe that God just waits in the wings for man to prepare the altar so that God can step in and do those things for which man cannot take the credit. And I think that's what God wants to do in the church. And that's what God waits to do. And when God moves into the life of a church, when man stops his petty performances and just lets God come in to work on a prepared altar that God can do more in 10 minutes in a church. And we can do in 10 years with all of our devices and our designs. You know, most of what we do in the church really is, um, is an end in itself. I mean, our preaching is an end in itself. If the preacher has three points and a poem and lets us out by noon... I mean, it's pretty good. We'll come back next Sunday. That's an end in itself. Our singing is an end in itself. We call it performance a lot of times. Terrible word for what the choir does when it ministers on Sunday, but we call it performance. So if everybody sings on key and everybody cuts off at the right time, you know, that's an end in itself. We pray as an end in itself. I mean, I know that I have a responsibility to pray, and so when I do a little praying every day, you know, I I'm, I'm feel real good about that. My, my prayer is an end in itself. Let me tell you what happened at Mount Carmel was all preparatory to something else. It was all preparatory to the falling of the fire. And so the proclamation and the prayer and the preparing of the altar was all preparatory to the falling of the fire for God to come and act like God and to do what God wants to do and what God can do. 
And that's what we need in the church. Oh, I'm not expecting some spectacular displays of fire like on Mount Carmel. We don't need that. But what we do need is to stop and let God start, is to prepare the altar, make preparation for God so that He can act like Himself and do what He wants to do. Then the Scripture says, Then the fire fell. Then the fire fell. When? When the altar was prepared and the sacrifice was quartered, and man had done his homework, then God stepped in and did what man could not take credit for. And I, be, I believe that Jack Taylor is the man who says that when we can get the then into the now, when we can find out what caused the fire to fall, when God was able to act like God acted on Carmel, then we found the bottleneck and we found the source of the, we found the culprit who is preventing revival to happen. Charles Finney said, revival can happen anytime if the conditions are right. Now, what are those things that happened in order for the then to become the now? Well, in the first place, there was the interpretation of the issue. I mean, what's the issue in revival? The vital issue. We talk about revival. We pray about revival, write about revival, read about revival, and live our life without one. What is the real issue? Well, it involves, first of all, the sighting of sin. And so Elijah stood up and he said, You folks are guilty of idolatry. You know what that is, don't you? An idol is that thing or person around which you organize your life. He said, now, and remember this, that he wasn't talking to pagan people there on Mount Carmel. He was talking to God's people. He was talking to the chosen folk, to the, to the nation of Israel. He was talking about Jacob's sons. He was talking about God's people. And he said, you folks have got idols in your life. You've, uh, you're not building your life around God. And until you remove the idols from your life until you sweep out these rivals, God is never going to step into your life and do anything. might be just as fresh today as when the ink was fresh on this page or the day was fresh in the life of Israel. God's not going to do anything in our life until we sweep away the idols. And He scored their indecision. He said, how long do you hesitate between two opinions? Now the key word is between. If you're between something, it means you've left one place and hadn't gotten to the next one. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? It means you don't have an opinion. You don't have a commitment. You don't have a conviction. That's what he's saying. He's saying, and you're hesitating to even make one. You're halting or limping along between this place and that, between this commitment and that commitment, between this conviction and that conviction. And this is what he said. If Jehovah is the very God of very gods, the one who is and ever lives and is ever being. If Jehovah is God, then follow Him. If materialism or Baal is God, follow Him. But take sides and let us know where you stand. Now the altars have changed, of course, but the issue has not. And if Elijah were here today, the prophet, since he's not, I'll have to do. This is what he would say. If God is the one who can fill that place in your heart that clamors to be filled. If He is the best one to guide and direct your life, 
to enable you and to crown you, then follow Him. But if materialism is the one to do that, then chase off after materialism and have your fill of it. If evil is, if you've made a decision that evil will best satisfy you, fashion and fit you and satisfy you, then you follow evil. But for God's sake and humanity's sake, make up your mind, make a decision, make a choice, and let us know where you stand. For the man who, for the man who sets his face and his heart to do evil continually and completely, does less damage to the community than the man who is taking upon his lips for discussion the sacred things of God and does not follow them to an issue. I know that, that statement you resent, but it's the truth. There are some people who worship money on the week during the week and come to find help from God on the weekend. And if the prophet were here, he would say, make up your mind which you're going to follow. If God, follow him. If not, follow Baal. I mean, it was showdown time. How would you like it if you were a member of some church and the preacher caught up on Sunday morning and said, okay, folks, it's time for showdown. Let's get in or out. Most of you would be getting out probably, but... He said, it's showdown time. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, follow me all the way. If any man will come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, follow me. He said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot be my disciple. That is, unless you're totally identified with me in the walk of life, there's no room for you on the fringe. It's showdown time. Now, don't you think it might be appropriate for, on, on some occasions, sometime for us to just have a little personal showdown and ask ourselves, now, it's time to either get in or get out, get off or get on, get up or get down. There was the, identific- the interpretation of the issues. Then for the fire to fall... There had to be the impartation of the instruction. It's not just enough to tell a guy what's wrong. It's important to tell him what to do about it. And so he did. He said, let's just do this. He said, you, 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 fill, you fix your altar and you get your sacrifice and you call on your God. And we'll, I'll call on mine and we'll just ask the fire to fall. as confirmation of whose God is God. And so these... Prophets of Baal, they fixed their altar and they called on their God. They called on him all morning and here's old Elijah over to the side taunting them and and mocking them. And he said, call a little louder. And they went into this frenzy. They cut themselves. He said, maybe he's reading, maybe he's taking a vacation or taking a nap. He's off for a walk. Maybe he's gone to the bathroom. Yeah, it's in there. You read the living Bible, it's even fiercer than that. He said, now, you call, maybe your God just doesn't hear you. And so they screamed and they hollered and they called and, 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 and Elijah was over there mocking them. I see some absolute confidence there. You know why? Because Elijah had, Elijah had the firm conviction and the assurance they weren't going to be able to produce You know what our great difficulty is, folks? You know why we hesitate between two opinions? It's because we're not thoroughly convinced that the other side's not right. 
You know why we hesitate between two convictions and two commitments? Is because we are not thoroughly convinced yet that the other side is not the best. That it won't be able to produce. We're not sure that it won't, you see. Kind of like a friend of mine, this guy was telling me, that he talked to him last week, you, you, it, it goes through this motion, he said, now I'm a Baptist, but I'm going to do this occasionally just in case they're right. I mean, we're not sure that the other side is not right. I see some authority there. Do you see what Elijah did? He, he, was telling the, he was telling the king what to do. Elijah said, we're going to do it my way now. He said, you get the altars, you fix it this way. I mean, here's this prophet telling the king what to do. You know anything about the believer's authority? Did you know that Jesus gave to the believer all power in heaven and earth? He said, as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. Have you read the scripture that the believer has authority over all enemies? Do you know anything about the believer's authority? I think it was Jack Taylor who said, perhaps there is no doctrine that gives any more immediate joy and effect than the believer's authority. It flows like a stream right from our basic relationship with Jesus Christ. And when we appropriate that authority, that power that is given to us, you know what it provides? It provides strength in battle. It provides boldness in prayer. It provides fearlessness in witnessing. It provides sufficiency for life. Elijah just got up there and he said, Now I'm in charge here. You get the altar and you do what I say. Let me read you something by H.J. Hagel. Have you been informed of the victory of your Savior in the greatest conflict of the ages? Are you listening to this? You need to hear this. Have you heard His voice? Behold, I give you power over all the power of the enemy. Then rise up to assert your rights. You are now a king. Rise up to reign. Give the command of faith. Never again go under when the enemy comes to oppress. Claim the victory in Jesus' name. Say, I'm in command here. Give your orders. The enemy will flee and you will live victoriously no matter how many or in what manner the demons come out against you. Furthermore, you will learn to liberate others. And that, as a Christian, is your mission. You know what he was saying? He said, you've been given the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. You have the power of the resurrected Christ. Now go and live in that power and that authority. That's what Elijah was doing on Carmel. He was just tending, appropriating the power of God that was available to him because of the mighty God he worshipped. What else did he do? Well, he repaired the altar. He said he repaired the altar that had been broken down. How did that altar get broken down? Did the, did the enemies, did the, did the prophets of Baal come in and trample it down? No, it just, it just broke down from neglect. How do the altars, how do the altars break down? They just, we just ignore them. We neglect them. That's what happens. Now listen to me, friend. Let me, let me appeal out of my heart. Some of you need to repair the altar of your prayer life. How many of you spend any time with God in prayer? I mean, you used to. 
used to have an altar where you came in prayer. You need to repair that altar. If you repair something, it means you fix something that used to be, you know. I, I listened to this guy on a, tel- on a television the other day, a radio. He said, we have a motto. It was an advertisement of some fix-it shop in Dallas. He said, we have a motto. We don't fix it until it's broken. Well, it's a pretty good motto to live by. Now, Elijah is saying, this, this altar in your life is broken down. It's time to fix it. Now, that's up to you. I think sometimes that, that we, we, we pray for revival as though we could just kind of sit here and put ourselves in neutral and God just you know, takes over and, and does something. Listen, there's some things you and I have to, to fix. And one is the altar of our prayer life. And another is the altar of our devotional life. Have you spent any time in God's Word lately? I mean, does God's Word live for you on a daily basis? Does God's Word speak to you? And there's the altar of our own witnessing. Some of us have never shared the gospel with anybody. There are people in this town who are lost, been lost long, been lost, lived here longer than I have, longer than I am old, that you've never shared with. And there's the altar of our own stewardship. Listen, he repaired the altar and he quartered the sacrifice and God's not going to operate on an altar that's broken down. It's up to you. What I'm trying to say is the, the, the need for revival in our own heart when the realization of it comes and the issue has been drawn. I've got to get in or get out. I've got to get on or get off. I, I need revival. I know how to go about doing it. I need to start claiming the authority that's mine and living over sin. And I need to begin to repair the altars that have broken down in my life. There was the impartation of the instruction, finally. There was the illustration of the involvement. Now, an altar is a place where God and man meet. There's several things about an altar. One is an altar is something that you put something on. Um, Altars don't just sit there vacant. You see, altars are made so you can put something on it. Second thing I know about an altar is that you never approach an altar without something dead. Now, God approached the altar of man's and placed on it His sinless Son for man's sin. That's how He approached the altar. I mean, he, he laid on that altar his, the sacrifice of his own son, sinless son. He said in the sacrifice, he said, here's where I meet you. I meet you at the point of your need. And, and I'm so involved with you that I'll give my son for your sin. And, and Paul picks up on this in Romans and he said, if, if God will do that, how shall he not freely give us all things? If God will sacrifice his son on an altar, what else would he do? He'd do anything, you see. Now, what are you to put on the altar? You're to put on the altar self. Now, now if you come to the altar and you, you want to put, up, put on that altar something dead, we're talking about, I mean, spiritually, we're talking about the death of self. I give myself my self-centeredness, my ego, I give myself. I put it on the altar for God. Now this is what happened. When he got ready to when he got ready for the fire to fall, 
he, he, he said, okay, time's up. You know, your, your, your time's up. Now it's my time. And he said, bring some water and put it on here. I mean, buckets of it, barrels of it. And, and, and it's a strange and weird thing because he's about to call down fire and he puts on the altar, he saturates the altar, that which is totally opposite to fire. The alien to fire. Now what is he saying? What, what's he, what is being said in that? He's saying, I'm expecting God to do something here today. I'm expecting God to do something here. Uh, I, I'm so convinced that God's going to do something here today. I, I'm, I'll be willing to saturate it. And that's why he brought you know, t- two at a time or four at a time. Just soaked it. Now, I, I've noticed this. I've noticed that when you prepare the altar in your life and you do your homework and you quarter the sacrifice, if you expect God to do something, He usually does it. Now here's a crucial question. Did did you expect God to do anything when you came in here this morning? How many of you came in here? No, you don't have to show hands. How many of you came in here hoping that the sermon would be an end in itself, the music would be an end in itself, and the praying would be an end in itself? Good sermon, three points in a poem, and get out by noon. Good song, kind of rouse you up and stir you like he, like he mentioned. Praying, you know, get, getting there at night worship. And, and, and thought, well, well, we'll do that and then we'll go home. When you come to the altar of God, a prepared altar, if you expect, listen, if you expect Him to come, to step in, to manifest Himself, to move, He usually does it. Not if we don't expect it. Now, what, you, what would you and I have done? We'd have probably stepped back from that altar and say, well, I don't know whether this thing going to work out like, this thing may not turn out like I hoped. About three o'clock in the morning, some mornings I wake up and I think about that building going up out there and that million three hundred thousand dollar debt. I think about this sign up here, pray for the miracle. I think about these folks, you folks, me, they're going to ask God to provide a miraculous thing in this. And we've just kind of, I noticed here, Elijah said that, that to show that I'm a true prophet. I mean, a prophet sticks his neck out on the line when he does something like that. And sometimes I kind of feel myself kind of backing up and saying, this thing may not turn out like we hoped. Elijah poured that water on there. When he did it, he was saying, I'm absolutely convinced that God's going to do something in this place. Just get back now and let it happen. Then the fire fell. Have you ever noticed the connotations of fire in the Bible? Let me just brush across them, then I'm through. Fire confirms. There was a pillar of fire by day, by night, to confirm the presence of God. When Gideon brought his sacrifice, how'd they know it was a sacrifice to God? Boom! Fire fell. Confirmed it. Fire convinces. I agree with the preacher who said, until the fire falls, not many people are going to have strong convictions about who God is. Charles Spurgeon used to tell his students, men, let me tell you how to be a preacher. Get yourself on fire for God and the folks will come and watch you burn. Fire convinces. When the fire falls in a church, 
The people of the town may not agree with everything that goes on down there, but they're convinced that God is about it. Convinces. And fire consumes. And the scripture says that when the fire fell, the sacrifice was gone. When the fire falls, man loses his life in God. Man loses his self in God. Man loses his self in service. He's consumed by it. He's consumed by it. Jesus said, the zeal of the Lord hath consumed me. And fire categorizes You want to tell what is the real nature of something. You put it on fire, real nature starts being revealed. No more is that true than in a Baptist church when the fire falls. You start categorizing. I mean, people are just automatically categorized right there. And there's all kinds of division. Now, when the fire fell, three things happened. The people fell. When the fire fell, the people fell on their faces. And they shouted, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. The people fell. When the fire fell, the people fell, and the people confessed. They confessed their idolatry. They confessed their indecision. They confessed God. When the fire fell, the people fell. The people confessed. Then the rain fell. If you'll read the next chapter, it says that the drought was broken and rain began to fall in Israel. Rain began to fall. Showers of blessing began to fall. The rain came and the drought was broken and the land became fruitful. The people fell and they confessed. Then the rain began to fall. In 1901, in Cardiff, Wales, a young man by the name of Evans Roberts, he was 21 years old at the time, 27 years old. He grew up as a a miner. His father was a miner, wasn't a Christian. He grew up working in the mines. For 11 years, he'd been praying for revival, was Elvins Roberts. He made a commitment to God that wherever he could go, wherever there was some answer to why no revival, he would go and find the answer. In a little church in Cardiff, Wales, one night, Evans Roberts slipped into a service and the people were praying for revival. I wish I could read the whole story to you. You can find it in any religious history book. He said, I was impressed by a statement that one of the evangelists made, one of the preachers that day, said, before revival comes, God has to bend us. And he said, God meant that for me. And he said, I begin to pray, God bend me. And he said, I fell across the pew in front of me with my arms over the pew. He said, I felt perspiration pouring off of my brow. I thought it was blood. And all I could say was, Lord, bend me, bend me. And he said, the people gathered around me and were wiping my brow. He said, I was wringing wet with perspiration. God was moving in upon my heart, he said. I was praying, Lord, bend me. When the Lord bent me, he said, there was this sweet peace came over me. 
And the people began to sing, Thou hast heard thy welcome voice. And he said, I went out of that church that night praying that God would let me take the gospel to all of Wales. And if you've ever read the history of revival, you will have read that for years in Wales, a revival broke out, prisons were opened, debts were paid, law enforcement officials lost their jobs, there were no crimes, prisoners got out of jail, people were out fishing out in the oceans, out in the, in the lakes, and they'd just row in and, and get, off the, get out of their boats and get on the sand, on the beach, and cry out to God. Such, such was the power of God upon whales when the fire fell. Would you pray this morning, Lord, bend me. Bend me. Show me that idol that's in my life. Help me to move it away. Bend me. Lord, help me to expect to believe that you are God, the only one who can fill this place in my heart that clamors to be filled. Would you pray, Lord? I think if I cannot experience revival, I think I'll die. Would you pray with me? Father, Lord, we're over 40 years of age and we know so little about what it means to see God move. Some of us live a lifetime and never see God move. God act in a way that God can act. Never see churches revived, renewed. Lord, our main concern, our prime concern this morning is our own life, our own need. So I pray, Lord, as I draw a circle around my own life, my own self, to pray, Lord, that you'll send revival there in that circle. Lord, if there are those this morning whose hearts have failed, who are hesitant between two commitments, a total commitment to the world and a total commitment to God, I pray that they all decide for God. Pray for this church, for this pastor, for this staff, for these leaders, for this choir, for this congregation. I lift up this need, this prayer, to the God who is and was and ever will be. In the name of Christ, I pray.